welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. As usual, I want to start by thanking everyone that supports the show via Patreon. And for those of you that share the podcast with friends, colleagues and students, the growth of the podcast over the last six months has been really incredible. And I'm frequently getting messages from people across the globe and professional and academic landscapes saying how much they've enjoyed the episodes. So a big and sincere thank you to you all. So like many of you, I had a bit of a break over the summer. And hopefully you've caught up on the wonderful qualitative research series, which was so perfectly finished off by my chat with Professor Dave Nichols. And on this episode, I'm continuing to explore the philosophical and conceptual side of the social world by speaking about relativism with Professor Martin Cush. Martin is a professor for applied philosophy of science and epistemology at the University of Vienna. And previously, he was Professor of Philosophy and Sociology of Science at the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at Cambridge University. Martin has published widely on the philosophy of social science, social epistemology, the sociology of knowledge, and the history of psychology. He also has a long-standing interest in everything to do with relativism, and has published extensively in this area, including the books The Routledge Handbook of Philosophy of Relativism, Social Epistemology and Relativism, The Emergence of Relativism, and the book Relativism in the Philosophy of Science. And Martin presents these books at the end of our chat, and I've linked these books in the show notes. So in this episode, we talk about relativism as a spectrum concept, with many different views of the doctrine ranging from radical to the more subtle. And we talk about the many different domains of relativism, such as aesthetic value, taste, morality, or epistemic justification. And Martin sets out his five key ingredients of relativism, regardless of the view or form that it takes. And we talk about how the commitment to equal validity, aka the anything-goes form of relativism, is often used by critics to define relativism in its most implausible form, in order to attack it and avoid engaging in the more nuanced, sensible, and interesting versions of relativism. And Martin tells us why our sense of taste is often used as a test case for the plausibility or implausibility of relativism. And we talk about the main opponent of relativism, namely absolutism. We talk about how relativism provides us with a sense of epistemic humility, but importantly this does not automatically assume a position of epistemic tolerance. And we talk about how methodological relativism has been used to good effect in the social sciences, such as anthropology, ethnography, and many of the qualitative research approaches that we've spoken about on this podcast. And finally, Martin offers his views about the different ways that we might access a reality, and what relativism has to say about notions of a single objective reality. So this was a complete privilege speaking with Martin. I'd been dreaming of wanting to explore relativism on the podcast for a long time. 
and had been hovering over the direct message button on Martin's Twitter profile for many months. But his friendliness and enthusiasm to share his knowledge and expertise on this podcast was just brilliant. He really is one of the foremost thinkers and writers of relativism, and I've linked some of his excellent talks and videos, including a brilliant TEDx talk he gave in 2019 titled Scientific Expertise in the Age of Post-Truth. So I bring you Professor Martin Cush. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Oliver. Nice to be here. Perhaps we could start by you telling us a bit about yourself, your academic background, your intellectual work, and I suppose your entrance into relativism. Okay, yes, thanks very much. Um, Well, um, I guess much of my academic background and training is somewhat surprising because even though I was German-born, I left Germany at the age of 18 to avoid the German draft and via Israel ended up in Finland, where I got much of my academic education. But that was my good luck because Finland um, is very strong in uh, modern analytic philosophy. And so I got a very good training, both in philosophy and also in related fields such as history of ideas and history of science. Now, how did I end up with relativism? It's really different things came together. On the one hand, In philosophy, I've always had a certain sympathy for the intellectual underdogs. (laughs) So whenever everyone is criticizing a certain philosophical position, I feel inclined to check whether it isn't perhaps better than the critics give it (laughs) credit for. Um, And so all the heroes of my philosophical youth, um, Habermas, um, Husserl, and, and, and Davidson, they all were constantly attacking relativism. So at some stage, I decided, well, I see whether there isn't something more to it. So that was one source. Another source is that the philosophical questions which interested me primarily very often forced me to confront relativism somewhere down the line. So I was interested in what is the nature of laws or principles of logic. And then you face the question, is logic one or is logic many? Um, Or I was interested in scientific change in the history of science, which very much is an inroad into relativistic Mm. questions. Or I was interested in philosophers like Michel Foucault and Wittgenstein, or in the sociology of knowledge. And in all these fields, um, relativism is a central issue that needs to be confronted sooner or later. So when finally I ended up via... 12 years in the UK, in Edinburgh and and Cambridge. I I should say, when I was in the UK, I spent three years in the Science Studies Unit in Edinburgh, which for many is or was in those days a hotbed of relativist thinking. So when I finally ended up in Vienna and in 2014, I applied for an European Research Council advanced grant. I thought, well, what am I going to do it on? And it seemed like um, relativism is like the natural point where my different interests came together. So for five years, I had the privilege of working with um, six uh, junior scholars intensively on the history and contemporary debates over relativism. And what I'm doing now is really still following on leads that this five-year project opened up for me. And and so do you 
identify as a relativist yourself or are you just someone that's interested in relativism? I mean, do you have to hold the view in order to understand the view? No, not at all. I do think that, um, as with many philosophical views, uh, many critics understand the view perfectly well. And I think also with respect to relativism, there are critics that understand the view perfectly well. There are many critics that misunderstand the view, um, but that, of course, you would expect for someone saying who has strong sympathies for it. Do I identify myself as a relativist? I would say yes and no. The problem here is that relativism, like many philosophical isms, is a spectrum concept. So many, many different views fit under that broad umbrella. And when you say you're a relativist yourself, people expect you to defend the whole spectrum. Um, and so mm -hmm. I rather prefer saying that there is a certain version of relativism that I'm willing to, mm. to defend, but I'm not defending relativism in all its forms. And therefore also my identification with the doctrine is, is somewhat limited. So maybe now is a good point to begin to orientate what relativism is, and at the same time, alluding to some of those maybe common characteristics amongst amongst the kind of spectrums or the, or the ones, those positions that exist on a spectrum. So how would you start by describing relativism to, to me or anyone else? Yeah, um, so let me, there are different steps that we need to go through to make the position um, clear. Let me say up front, people often think that other than scientific views, um, relativistic views can be summed up in a slogan. There's mm -hmm. always a temptation people from outside of philosophy have that mm -hmm. about philosophy. And that's, that's a wrong conception of philosophy. So just like, you know, theories in, in economics or in physics um, can be rather complex. So one needs to go through different, different steps to see what the position actually is. The same is true of, of relativism. So let me take you through a couple of steps and please break in at any point whatsoever to ask for further clarification or to, or to, to ask me to comment um, uh, from a different angle. So first thing to note is that there are many different forms of relativism in the sense that you can be a relativist with respect to different domains. So, for example, you might be a relativism about aesthetic value. Beauty is the eye of the beholder is like a classical formulation of that, right? Or you might be a relativist about taste of foods, culinary relativism. <laughs> um, those are relative, relatively uncontroversial forms of relativism. But, of course, we get into more difficult terrain if we say, well, you might be a relativist about moral value, you might say that um, whether a certain action is morally acceptable or not depends on, then you might say culture or framework or perspective or whatever you want to make it relative to. Or you might be a relativist with respect to um, epistemic justification. Then you say something like um, whether a certain belief can be justified, justified as likely to be true, depends on a standard mm. or depends on a value or something else. So that's more controversial, um, relativism with respect to epistemic justification. And, and, and the bit about is likely to be true, what's the truth relative to? I mean, it seems circular. So is it true in the sense that this is an absolute truth, a universal truth? Or when you, when, when you use the word truth, what, what is it you're kind of meaning? Yes. No, it should be said that, mm, um, that there, there are two different things one might say here. On the one hand, one might be 
let me go back to the epistemic justification. Then you say whether a belief is justified or not depends on a standard. And standards might vary from society to society. Let's, let's stick with that for the moment. Um, separately from that, you might also be a relativist about truth. Then you say um, whether something is true or not depends on local standards. And related to that, you might be a relativist about reality. You might say whether something is real or not depends on the standards of different communities. Okay. So you can separate these things out, epistemic justification, relativism, about truth. However, it has to be said that it's not that easy to spell out the relativism only in this one domain. You might have to make links to the other domains. And within those different domains, there are spectrums of relativism as, as well. Is that right? Yes. Yes. I mean, you might... Um, let's, let's stick to the case that's more easy to recognize how it works. Let's think about the moral domain. So um, you might, first of all, distinguish moral relativism from these other forms of relativism. But then within the moral domain, of course, your relativism might be more or less radical. That depends on how much variation you allow for within the relativism. So you might say, you might say, for example, there are uh, two main forms of moral thinking. There's Eastern thinking and Western thinking, and the respective values and standards are relative to the Western way of thinking or the Eastern way of thinking. I'm not propagating this view. I'm just giving it as an, as an example. Then you allow for basically two moral systems to be in the running. Of course, you might be more radical and allow for many more moral systems to be in the running. So that's one dimension in which they might differ. But they might also differ in the following sense. You can be a relativist and say, well, there are certain moral principles that are valid everywhere. And then you like restrict within morality the range with, in, in which you allow for relativist views. So you might say that, um, you know, mm. don't kill the innocent. That is a universal principle and holds everywhere. But other than that, there's great moral variety. That's not, you know, depending on how much commonality you allow for between those different cultures, say, also distinguishes between different forms of relativism. And you say that you can be a, a relativist in one domain, but not the other. Mm -hmm for example, epistemic relativism versus moral relativism. And that's possible because there aren't contradictions between those different positions. So that's, that's okay. That's congruent. Let's say that's also controversial with respect to which you can be a relativist in the one domain and in the other domain. Some people say, some critics will say, well, either you're a relativist with respect to everything or nothing. Um, because if you allow something absolute in one domain, well, why don't you allow for something absolute in another domain? Of course, then the relativist has to do some fancy footwork to justify that. And note that this argument could be run also the other way around, because even people who are absolutists about, say, epistemology and morality will allow relativism often with respect to taste or aesthetic value. And then you might say, well, why don't these arguments that you give there also apply, apply to some other domain? So it can be played either way. 
Um, you have to explain if you see it in only one domain rather than others, how you justify drawing, drawing the line. So I interrupted you. You were nice explaining the spectrum of relativism, or at least setting out some, some kind of principles before you launched in. Yes. So, yeah. So we, we talked briefly now about um, different versions of relativism, depending on what you apply the relativism to. Of course, there can also be different versions of relativism with respect to which the relativism is applied. I mean, all forms of relativism are ways of filling in the formula X is relative to Y. And we have now seen that X might be moral value, might be truth, might be reality. We haven't said anything about the Y. So what, is the, what are these different things relative to? And there you may, you may, you may say things like um, culture, gives you cultural relativism. Um, you might say paradigms, that sounds like Kuhn. Or you might say something like standpoints, as in standpoint theory in Marxism or in feminist philosophy. And of course, ultimately, you might say the individual. X is relative to the individual. Then you get something which is called Protagorean relativism, because allegedly one of the sophists that Socrates was facing was defending this form of relativism, which makes things relative to the individual. So that's one way in which we can tease apart different forms of relativism. But I want to go a little bit over um, five key ingredients that I take to be essential to a relativist view, whatever the domain. And I use as my example moral relativism, but it could also be applied to the other domains. Okay. So th and these ingredients can uh, uh, a map across the spectrum of relativism yes. or one end might have two, the other end has five? No, no. These, no. Things, okay. these things in my book, um, every relativist view has to okay. include in order to be a relativist view at all. And it has to include all of them, all five of them. Okay, so the first principle is to say that a moral belief or a moral action has a moral status as being morally good or morally bad only relative to a set of standards. We might call this the, the standard dependence of moral value. That's the first principle. The second principle that a relativist has to adhere to is what a principle that I call plurality. Namely, there could be more than one such sets of standards. There isn't just one set of moral standards. There are, or at least could be, many sets of moral standards. That's the second element. The third element is that at least some of those sets of standards conflict. So you can't accept them all, but um, something may be permissible according to one set of standards, which is not permissible to another set of standards, and um, then you have to choose. That's the third principle, the principle of conflict. The fourth principle is a principle that I call conversion. And this says that when two sets of standards conflict, there isn't a compelling route from one set of standards to another set of standards. So, 
you know, whatever evidence you collect, it can't force you out of your set of standards and into another set of standards. It can't force you. Of course, you might become convinced by all sorts of different considerations, appeals to your values, etc., etc., but it does involve some kind of conversion. I mean, of course, conversion has certain religious overtones, um, but we don't need to focus on those too much. We should recall here, for example, that Thomas Kuhn, when he describes how scientists in the scientific revolution shift from one paradigm to another, also sometimes uses the metaphor of conversion. Conversion is simply to signal that evidence and logical arguments can't force you out of your epistemic or moral system and into another. Okay, then we come to the final bit. And that's the bit that we need to pay, in a way, most attention to. And this is a, it's, it's the least obvious and for uh, philosophical laypersons, perhaps the one that's the trickiest. And indeed, it is the trickiest for anyone, philosophers included. And that is a principle that I call symmetry. Now, symmetry talks about how different epistemic systems relate to one another or different moral systems relate to, to one another. And one version of symmetry is to say that all different moral systems are symmetrical in the sense that every one of them is ultimately based on something that only has local credibility. So every moral system, let me put it in different words, every moral system is ultimately not based on the way the world is or reasons eternal nature or something of this sort, but every moral system is ultimately grounded on things that are only locally in a specific cultural historical context taken to be as obvious. There is no, there is no further basis or foundation for moral systems ultimately than beliefs, feelings, tendencies, dispositions, values that only have local credibility and plausibility. Basically, assume that you challenge someone to justify a moral belief that they have. Well, they might say, I have this moral belief because it's based on this and this standard. And you ask them, well, justify that standard. And we'll say, well, this standard fits together with my other standards. And then you ask them to justify the other standards. And so you go back and back and back. And ultimately, you end up with something, some intuition, some immediate visceral conviction that things have to be in this way that cannot be further justified. And this visceral um, sense of this is how things have to be need not be common between different cultures and very often are not common between different cultures. Because if you look at the record in anthropology, the enormous diversity in moral beliefs across history and across the world, there are few things that every culture share on, uh, share. And even those things that seem to be shared, we might always be careful not to um, draw the wrong conclusions from it, because if we regard two elements of two different cultures as the same, 
then we tend to often ignore how at each of the two ends that belief is related to other beliefs. And therefore, even what to our eyes at first seems to be the same element in the two different moral systems actually are different in virtue of the relations they have to respective other elements of the two moral systems. Hmm. So I'm, I've now explained to you one key way to spell out symmetry, that all moral systems are alike in ultimately petering out in something which only has local credibility. There's a different way to spell out symmetry. I will only give you two more. Um, another one is to say that all moral systems are ultimately alike in that they cannot be ranked in a neutral way. All ranking of moral systems has to presuppose a moral system. Mm. And the, their ranking is different according to which moral system you start from. And there is no moral system which is like the super moral system from the perspective of which we can rank all the others. Call this like symmetry not as locality, the first principle, but symmetry as non-neutrality. There is no neutral way of ranking different moral systems. Is that a controversial claim? And would there be people disagreeing with that? To me, it seems entirely straightforward, but well, I'm guessing that... Yeah, there are people that... I mean, I mean, assume like if you were a Kantian about morality and you think that the categorical imperative um, act in this way, that the, that the maxim the rule according to which you act could be a rule for everyone. Um, Kant thinks that that is a moral principle that every rational person at all times would accept. So you might say this is a, a meta principle from which to rank all the principles. Um, so that's the non-neutrality. Of course, non-neutrality goes together with the first elements, the locality. So you can accept both. And finally, the third version of symmetry, and we will need this to distinguish between plausible and implausible versions of relativism, is a principle I call equal validity. Equal validity says all moral systems are symmetrical in that they're all equally right. Or equally wrong. So it doesn't matter which one, which one you choose. You might call that, that's the anything goes relativism. And critics of relativism always attack relativism committed to equal validity. They say, if it isn't equal validity, it isn't relativism. Historically, it needs to be said that almost every card-carrying relativist denies equal validity. I mean, they might accept it in realms like um, taste. Um, but in any more substantive domain, like morality or epistemic justification or reality or truth, um, sensible relativists will deny equal validity. So when the, when the critics say, if it isn't equal validity, then it isn't relativism, they basically try to define relativism in its most implausible way, thereby avoiding having to take on the more interesting versions of relativism. 
What is it about taste that's come up twice? Why is taste so exceptional that it either gets a a green card? You know, you can either it's okay if it's taste, but what's what is it about taste that makes it different from the other domains that you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, the reason why why taste often comes up in in these discussions is that many people will say, if uncontroversially there is a realm where everyone finds relativism plausible then it is taste. And then the argument goes the other way around. If it isn't even plausible in the case of taste, (laughs) then actually it's not plausible anywhere. And there are people who argue in this way, people who argue that it doesn't make sense to be a relativist, even about sense, and therefore forget the relativism in every debate. And of course, there is some justification to it, because even though we often say things like de gustibus non est disputandum, very often we criticize people for their bad taste, <laughs> taste, say in clothing or, you know, they like a certain wine, which we think is absolutely awful, et cetera, et cetera. So we are not uh, total relativists in the case of, of taste. So even this case is a bit more complicated okay. than, meets, than meets the eye. And so that extreme view where kind of the anything goes relativist, that's been, is that still a credible position to hold? I and mean, what's, the, what's the philosophical field saying to, to that group of, of philosophers, is that still a, a view that's held? It's not really a view, 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 that's, view that's held. I mean, in, in, in my book, it's a view that critics of relativism okay. um, think relativism is the commitment to equal validity and therefore well-known recent contributions to relativism debates, for example, by the American philosopher Paul, Paul Bogosian, uh, fear of knowledge was his book in 2006, much, much discussed, um, focuses very much on the anything goes relativism or Timothy Williamson's book, um, this tetralogue, um, and many other books focus on that, on that version. The card carrying relativists keep saying, don't criticize us for an assumption we don't make. And therefore often the, debate between the relativist and their critics is fruitless because the critics say, well, it's either equal validity or you don't deserve the name relativism. And then they refute the equal validity view and the relative, the card carrying relativists say, well, let's start a sensible discussion once you attack us in a more, in a more meaningful way. So very often they argue past each other. And I'm guessing that the critics come from many different positions, but you mentioned absolutism. And is that a contrasting view? I mean, what's the, how do you position that to relativism? Yeah. Um, the question is, what is the opponent? And um, it seems to me that it's natural to say that you have to choose. You're either a relativist, or if you're not a relativist, well, you have to be an absolutist. Of sorts, because what's what's the opposite of relative? Well, it's absolute. And some people say that the opposite of relative of relativist is realism. But that's not true. You can be you can combine realism and relativism. Or some people say the opposite of relativism is objectivity, to which the relativists reply, no, 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 there can be a relativist account of objectivity. So the concept of objectivity doesn't divide us. But what does divide us is something is either relative or it is absolute. And that seems to me a plausible 
view. Of course, remember that just like relativism is a spectrum concept, so also absolutism is a spectrum concept. So your absolutism can be in different degrees of strength, which again makes the debate somewhat involved and complicated. You need to match the right kind of absolutism against the right kind of relativism for there to be an interesting debate. And you mentioned that you were drawn to relativism, or one of the reasons was that it was an underdog. And why is it why does it get such a kicking? I mean, what is it about it that makes it a target of criticism by whether absolutists or others? Yeah. I mean, one the first thing to say here, it wasn't always the relativist who got the beating. Um, of course, in, in antiquity, if Plato is right, then um, if we interpret Plato correctly, then Socrates in the dialogue Theotides is attacking a relativist, a sophist. Whether the sophists really were relativists or rather skeptics is an open question. And then for many centuries, relativism as a distinct position kind of vanishes. And the position that is being contrasted with the normal absolutist view is skepticism. So the opposition then was always skepticism versus absolutism. And for example, when David Hume defended certain skeptical views, it was Hume that was being attacked, and it was said skepticism undermines belief in God, and skepticism undermines science, and skepticism undermines, undermines morality. So if you read some of the texts that James Beattie, um, Hume's uh, opponent, who is an absolutist, writes against Hume, you'll find all the rhetoric that we nowadays are familiar with from the case of critique of relativism, you'll find in the case of critique of skepticism. Then in the early 20th century, relativism comes back, and now it's the relativist, no longer the skeptic, but the relativist, who is the one who undermines rationality mm. and undermines science. But even here, the story is complicated, because in the 19th century, with the rise of the natural sciences and the historical sciences um, in, in Europe, at first, the sciences are strongly associated with relativism and not with absolutism. It was thought that the work of the sciences undermines beliefs in absolutes, undermines religious belief, undermines belief in the one and only morality, undermines the belief in a single form of rationality. Mm. But in the beginning of the 20th century, it begins to change and increasingly relativism is seen as a position that undermines not only rationality as unique, but also undermines science. And in, over the last 30, 40 years with the science wars and all these debates, it seems to have emerged as a central opposition that on the one hand, you have relativist sociologists and other social scientists, anthropologists, and on the other hand, you have um, hard-nosed scientists, and of course, there's no relativity there, and that's the, that's the opposition. It's, it's useful to remember that as late as the 1940s, um, Einstein's successor at the chair in Prague, Philipp Frank, also a leading figure in the famous Vienna Circle group of philosophers of science who very much inaugurated the philosophy of science, wrote a book defending relativism. 
um, you know, was a book like entitled Truth, Relative or Absolute. And he says, well, clearly anyone who takes science seriously has to commit to the relativity of standards and to standards changing and to the assumption of absolute standards being nonsensical. So as late as that time, it was perfectly unsurprising for a top natural scientist to defend relativistic views against absolutist views. But that has changed now. And nowadays we have that somewhat unfortunate opposition that you're easily regarded as anti-science mm. if you're defending relativist views. Is that a, is that a, a kind of um, an accusation that's put to you or, or to colleagues? What's the view of kind of the scientific community currently with regards to relativism? Yeah, I, well, I don't think the scientific community has quasi-scientific community a view on this. I think many, many practicing scientists um, have little knowledge of and indeed take little interest in um, arcane philosophical debates about relativism versus absolutism. But of course, there are scientists who do take some interest in what's happening in the social sciences and what happens in uh, philosophy. And they perceive some of the things that sociologists of science say as threatening and undermining. So when they hear the sociologists saying that um, ultimately scientific beliefs also have just local causes of credibility, they hear this as, as saying um, scientific knowledge rests on nothing or scientific knowledge rests on pure feelings or something like this. A view that the sociologists do not take, but a view that um, is easily attributed to them from natural scientists who, frankly, have not looked that carefully into what the sociologists of science actually do. And maybe you want to kind of continue to develop your description of relativism and maybe any implications with regards to our lives and maybe any examples that might resonate with, with the layperson. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's one should not ex, one should not expect very abstract philosophical views to have necessarily as a test of their hmm. interests direct implication for everyday life. Hmm. As I said before, most practicing scientists do their work without ever worrying for one moment about the philosophical debates between realists and anti-realists in the, in the philosophy of science or between realists and relativists. So I think relativism makes, an, makes a big difference in the methodology that social scientists use. There it is really important. It's also important in how we think, say, about um, different cognitive systems or how we think about um, about morality, there it does make a difference, but it makes a difference on a very abstract level. It's not like in the sense that um, you teach someone what relativism is and they're going to change their moral lives. It's not going to be like that. It's more, it's a more, I would say what relativism gives you for your everyday life, I would, I would say is a sense of epistemic or moral humility by recognizing that your view ultimately is based on something which has only local credibility. It might make you more humble in your own moral judgments. 
But it doesn't mean that epistemic humility has to go with an extreme form of epistemic tolerance. That I am humble about my moral beliefs and think that they may well be wrong or I might well um, underestimate the strength of another moral system does not force me to say, well, um, if, the, if the Taliban don't let go women into, into schools, fair enough, that's the Taliban system of beliefs and I should tolerate it. It's very important to emphasize that relativism can go together with tolerance, but it need not go together with tolerance. At the same time, absolutism can also go together with tolerance. You might say, you might be an absolutist about tolerance and you say, one of the values that I think are absolutely correct is that I should be tolerant. Even if I think the other side is wrong, I should still tolerate their views. That's what an absolutist might say. Mm. A relativist might also be intolerant. A relativist might say, yes, I, I recognize that ultimately my belief peters out in something which only has local credibility, but here I stand and I can no other and I reject people who act in this way. How do they not then slip into absolutism? How is it that the intolerance with the relativism, how, how, do they, how are they compatible? Well, you recognize you recognize that ultimately your value system rests on something which only has local credibility. But you also, you, you fully, you fully accept that. At the same time, you say, yes, it is only of local credibility, but at the end of the day, that's the only thing I can go with. And if I very strongly have the moral belief that not letting girls into school is morally wrong, then I should try to convince the other side to change their ways. Because the relativist is not committed to saying you are never allowed to argue someone out of their beliefs. I am allowed to argue people out of their beliefs. I just can't do it with the safety that my view is absolutely right mm. or there is an absolute truth here to be discovered. So one is humble about the foundation of one's own moral system, but with all due humility, one can still try to convince someone else to change their ways. And maybe say something about, you said that we, we talked about the, the relevance or the salience of relativism in the social sciences and how it's being, how it's being used to, to understand cultures, for example, or various social groups. What value does it add? I mean, what is the perspective that a researcher might take, for example, to understand some social phenomenon or process, what does relativism give us, if you like, to inquire about those areas? Yeah, I mean, there, there we might need one more distinction. Please. Namely, the distinction between methodological relativism and substantive relativism. A methodological relativism or heuristic relativism is a relativism that one takes on, as it were, conditionally. Um, one works as if relativism was correct. And I would say much work in anthropology, much highly valuable work in anthropology and in other social sciences, when you're trying to understand someone's belief system, is based on a heuristic methodological relativism. So you don't immediately bring into play your standards of rightness and 
justification and truth and reality and value. But you rather try to make every effort to try to reconstruct the culture under investigation in their belief system um, from the inside mm. rather than from your outside. And that has proved an enormously valuable research strategy in the social sciences. And some defenders of relativism, for example, David Bluer in the sociology of knowledge, then takes a further step and says, well, look, if relativism is such a tremendously successful research strategy, such a tremendously successful methodology, then isn't it reasonable to also adopt it as a substantive view? Isn't that like, you know, the, the proof of the pudding mm -hmm. is in, the, in its delivering strikingly insightful understanding of cultures and their values and their beliefs. And if it's so good at that, well, isn't that the right view to take? Right, so I would say that um, many anthropologists and many social scientists are de facto relativists in the research work that they do, taking it as like um, a methodological stance that proves to be successful. And of course, many cognitive scientists uh, do the same when they're trying to understand the human uh, visual system or the human way of forming beliefs about uh, perceptual objects, etc. That they don't immediately judge which is the right and the wrong view, but they're trying to understand how does the visual system does it, mm. uh, do it, um, both when it gets things right and when it gets things wrong. About five or six episodes ago, I had an ethnographer on the podcast and she was telling about her work and she does institutional ethnography. But she brief, gave me a brief history of ethnography and how originally actually it wasn't relativist in so much as you would have people from the West standing back with clipboards, metaphorical clipboards, really trying to impart their standards and their perspective on the, the cultural group. Whereas now it's very much embedded and it's an insider perspective or, or position that researcher takes? Yeah. I mean, nowadays, I, I, I recently had a conversation with someone um, who does a lot of um, work from a philosophical perspective about um, colonialism and de de decolonization. And I mean, he was pointing out that um, nowadays, it's not so much the ethnographer merely trying to reconstruct the other side's belief system from the inside. So it's not just that classical relativist view, but nowadays it becomes increasingly important to like um, engage in a fair and equal way with the other view. So it's not so much to just describe their view from the inside, but it's also to ask what can they contribute from their point of view to our point of view? And how does the confrontation with the other view potentially change our view. But you might even say that here, the precondition of that working is for you to take a certain relativist openness towards the other view and to have a certain epistemic humility in the way you respond to the other view. I mean, you said that to what extent does relativism apply to individuals' everyday life? And you alluded to it there, that just being aware of the uh, the other and the other person's perspective and, and views and that they're not you and they might share different values. So 
at an individual level, it seems to have some use as well. Yes, as long as it's understood that relativism is not mere blanket tolerance. So to say, well, this is your view, you know, when someone disagrees with you, well, that's just, that's just your view. And then to leave it at that. If one responds like that, then one fits the caricature of the bad relativist that the critics about relativism <laughs> of, uh, are, are so, are so worried, worried about. Like this, this, this response, you know, someone disagrees with you, whatever. Um, you know, this, I don't care. That's just your view. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, you know, this is what is sometimes nowadays, of course, associated with post-truth and uh, a disregard for the truth. Relativism is not a disregard for the truth. To even, even if for someone who sees truth as relative, um, is not committed thereby to saying any truth is as good as any truth. And it would seem to me that it, it's a very, what's the word? I mean, there's complex picture that there are many potentials to contradict yourself and and as you just described there's lots of ways that people could go wrong in terms of erroneous thinking and and contradict themselves is that is that unique to relativism or, or? no it's sometimes said by by critics of relativism, oh, come on, this relativist position is so complicated. Yeah, you tell us there are so many versions. I mean, come on, come on, you know. Um, isn't it dubious, any view that is so, so complicated? To which my response is um, a philosopher by the name of Susan Haag, uh, who is very much um, a critic of relativism, wrote a paper in 1988 entitled Realism. And in this paper, she, dis she distinguished about, um, about 50 different versions of what realism might mean. Uh, it, may, it may have been 60. I mean, my, my, my memory is, is a bit uh, shaky on this. Mm -hmm. So take any philosophical ism, you know, idealism, realism, uh, voluntarism, perspectivism, you know, take it, take whatever you like. And you will, of course, find many different versions of it. Just like as in the sciences, um, you have, you know, take any, any theory in the social sciences, Marxism, um, uh, ethnography uh, or ethno, ethno methodology, and you will immediately have 50 different versions of it. That's just the normal way in which creative human engagement with positions works. And so, <laughs> yes, relativism is a complex position. But that's what makes it interesting, and that's why uh, hard work on it is an interesting thing to do. And it's not different, to repeat, in that respect from other philosophical isms. I'm looking at both the time, but also conscious I haven't yet said anything completely stupid. So, so I want to, <laughs> it might be a good time to bail now, but, but I suppose just for you to add anything or anything, you know, positions of clarity or things that you'd really like to, to mention in regards to relativism. Um, yeah, I mean, you, one of the questions that you had, um, down before we, before we met that I thought I wanted to say something to, like you asked me whether relativism is compatible with objective mm. knowledge or is relativism compatible with objective truth? Yeah. And you also asked me on the relativist view, can we ever access reality? And I would like to say a little bit, a little bit on those, on those topics. Please, yeah. As first, what concerns objectivity? I really want to underline the view that um, 
objectivity is not something that the absolutist alone owns. Like in the way in which we normally speak in everyday life, we often draw a distinction between something being objective or being subjective. When we say, you know, someone's response is just merely subjective, we mean something like, well, it's not really based on argument. It's not really based on rational consideration. It's just whatever came to mind, people are doing. Um, and relativism is not an endorsement of subjectivity in this sense. Um, relativists also would insist that in many cases, it makes, it makes good sense to distinguish between objectivity and subjectivity. It's just that objectivity should not be equated with absolutism. You know, something can be objective in the sense that you have given a good argument for it. And that's an argument that many of the rest of us can actually accept, that we might call it objective. Yeah, so objectivity and absoluteness are two different things. Okay. That's one thing I wanted to say on that score. Um, on this question about access to reality, on a relativist picture, um, do we ever have access to reality? Well, the thing to reflect on here is what do we mean by access to reality? You might say that every day when you walk along the streets and you place your feet carefully on the ground and you don't fall over, you are making access with reality. You find access to reality, otherwise you couldn't do what you're doing. Um, if, on the other hand, we are smashing subatomic particles, um, you, are we then making real contact with uh, reality? Well, we are making contact with reality in a certain very specific sense by making, by making particles fly in paths that in actual life, in the real world, they had never made quite in this way, right? So there's a certain element of artificiality about what we do in particle colliders. And of course, there's a certain artificiality about you walking along the street because there's a pavement, you've got shoes on and so on. So the, the thing to remember is access to reality means a wide spectrum of things. And of course, the relativist doesn't deny that in many, many ways we are having access to reality. For example, in the way that we are adapted to it, in the way in which a Darwinian biologist would say that you know, organisms are adapted to their environment. We make contact with reality in the sense that we are adapted to it. But if by access to reality you mean something very absolutist in the sense of, um, do we really get to the one and only description of what reality really is like, then the relativist will insist that string of words on reflection doesn't make much sense. There isn't one unique way in which the world is like. The world is infinitely complex, and therefore organisms like us, like any other organisms, need to, in multiple ways, simplify the enormous complexity of the world. And our contact with the world is always and invariably mediated by such simplifications, by such reduction of complexity. 
But reduction of complexity in our engagement with the world does not mean that we lose access to the world. It's just that every access to the world is a partial access to the world. And there isn't the one description of the world that we get ever closer to, like the God's eyes view on everything. The relativist will say that talk of a God's eyes view, when you start probing it, doesn't really make sense. So in that sense, if that's what you mean by access to reality, can we ever see the world in the way in which a God would be able to see it? The relativist says, I don't know what you mean. But would the realist say, I know exactly what you mean? The real, well, of course, again, in fairness to the realist, there are so many different versions of, um, of realism. But there are, let's say, a number of versions of realism that are implicitly committed to thinking that there is an ideal theory of reality that tells us what reality really is like. And even though we can never quite get there, mm. we can get ever closer to it. Whereas the relativist would say that um, the goal itself that's underlying this metaphor of getting ever closer to it doesn't really make sense. So that you've got, I mean, there's two books that I've come to know. One is the, the, the oh, it's kind of the big book. <laughs> the big book, which you're, you can afford and edited. So tell us about how people can read more about relativism and particularly your work. Yes. Um, so one is the book that um, you kindly referred to as the big book. Um, so as part of the project that I had, um, I uh, was... Uh, foolish and ambitious enough to think, well, how about putting a book together where from different cultures, from different fields of philosophy, from different perspectives, people discuss and study relativism. So the book has almost 60 contributors who discuss relativism in the most varied of philosophical tradition and the most varied of philosophical disciplines. Um, I think primarily this is a book for specialists, um, but I think, you know, I would like to think that whatever your starting point is in philosophy or say in like the social sciences, you will find some papers there that you might find useful. So that's one output of the, of the project. But there are also two other books that, two other collections of books that I like to advertise. Um, one is um, a book that I edited together with some of my colleagues in this ERC project on, called The Emergence of Relativism. And this is a book that studies how the versions of relativism that we are nowadays familiar with originate and come to pass um, in the 19th century. So for anyone who is interested in the history of relativism might find this an important um, book. And the third book I might mention is again edited together with some of my colleagues from the ERC project is a book called Epistemic Relativism and Social Epistemology. And this very much focuses on the relativism concerning epistemic justification and looks at what form that can take and in which form is it plausible and in which form isn't it plausible. So if you have read these three books, um, you, are, you are an absolute specialist 
um, in the topic. <laughs> so I'll, I'll make sure I link those three books Great. on in the show notes and some of the other papers or, or resources that you've mentioned. But just to say the big book uh, really is a big book and um, it's an incredible book. I mean, it's 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 like you said, it just spans a whole range of different viewpoints or domains of relativism. It's incredibly impressive. Yes, it was hard work. Yeah. <laughs> um, hard work, first of all, to find contributors for all these different areas um, and then to make it all fit together so that one can understand as much as possible from those different areas. And have you applied your five ingredients to the different chapters? I mean, do they all satisfy your five ingredients for relativism? It wasn't. I mean, I explained those ingredients in the introduction to the book. But of course, every writer was within their rights to define um, to, to define how they understand relativism. So they may not all have thought about this in those in those terms. Um, and of course, that's that's very much what is desirable because part of the interest is to see how do different parts of philosophy even define what relativism actually is. And of course, one finds some variety there as well. And in some cases, people call things relativist in the book that I would not call relativists. And in other cases, it nicely fits with my categories. So you find both, both of those uh, positions. Martin, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Oliver. Wonderful. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, it's nice to go over these things with a new, with a new interlocutor and you know, think them through again in a, in a, in a different sequence um and so thank you yeah no it was good and i would start i would start listening to your podcast more generally because so far i wasn't really aware of them yeah the, so, the, so the ones the ones you might like so like i said there was a series of 16 episodes on causation with some philosophers from norway uh, and kind of rejecting the kind of human yeah. notion of causation which you which you might like um and then some recent ones with the ethnographer and some posts actually some post qualitative researchers which which allude to kind of post-truth stuff that yeah, you mentioned yeah. so they might be interesting too yeah yeah no happy happy to, to to listen in on them great brilliant thanks martin take care thank you take care bye-bye if you enjoyed this podcast visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.